1 Peter chapter 1, we are doubling the amount of verses we're going through. Uh, we're going we're gonna to hit a whopping four tonight, all right? 8 through 12, okay? 8 through 12. Uh, just to, to recap, if you haven't been with us, maybe give you a little bit of a road map tonight, if you will. Uh, the, the recipients of this letter are all in Asia Minor, which is under Roman rule, and they are believers, mostly Gentiles, some Jews, that are experiencing a great deal of persecution and suffering, largely because of their faith and association with Jesus. And so Peter... The Apostle Peter is writing a letter to a lot of these churches, and a guy kind of travels through, hands it out, they read it, they're encouraged, hopefully, and, and his goal is to encourage these Christians in the now of their suffering with truths and promises of God for the now and the future of their lives. That was my son that was making a ruckus in the back, and I apologize. <laughs> um, so he's encouraging Christians in the now of their suffering by reminding them of all that God has done and all that God will do, helping them endure whatever comes their way, whether that's persecution or suffering or some of the things that we're going to see tonight. And so really, uh, verses 1 through 12 makes up an entire section, and we're going to come to the end of that section. So I'll just tell you, uh, 1 through 12 is a celebration of what God has done for believers in Christ Jesus. That's what Peter has been doing. In this whole thing, he is just celebrating and reminding them and explaining what God has done for them through Christ Jesus. Verses 1 through 2 features the saving work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, you've been saved by the triune God. Verses 3 through 5 is the guaranteed inheritance that's laid up, reserved in heaven for you that allows them to endure suffering. He says, we're going to be with God forever. We're born again into a new hope. This is guaranteed to you. It is imperishable, undefiled, reserved for you. Verses 6 through 7 is what we talked about last week. We said that it was the purpose of present problems. That God is going to allow trials and, and things to distress you, but for a specific purpose, and that is to prove the quality of your faith and to purify you, to make you look more like Christ and less like the world. Remember, he melts us down uh, with intense heat like gold so that all of our embellishments, all of the stuff that is not of God uh, would be skimmed off of us and that we would be refined, remolded, into something that is purposeful and valuable and useful to God. And that goes to his glory and to our praise in the end of things when God is revealed. And eight through nine is going to carry off of verses six and seven, uh, and, and he's going to explain the fruit of people's new life in Christ and how that can be an encouragement to them in the midst of continued trials, uh, mainly being that Jesus is gone. And all of the doubts and the discouragements that come with it. And then 10 to 12 highlights the privilege of believers to be living in the days that God's promises are being fulfilled. So he's laying out a lot of really, really rich gospel truth. And all of it is leading to his first command in verse 13, which you can look at it for just a second. We're not going to camp out it here, but just so you can see how Peter is building his, his letter here. He says, therefore, 
What's the therefore, therefore, verses 1 through 12? He's building a lot of theology, and then he says, therefore, since all of these things are true of you in Christ Jesus, here's what you need to do. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. And then here's the main verb. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, because all of these things are true for you in Christ Jesus, I want you to fix your hope completely on him and the grace that will be brought to you when he is revealed, when he comes back, when we go to him. When everything is perfected, when we have our final and full glorification, when all of the things, when we see him as he is and we become like him, when everything is made right in this world, what a glorious day that will be. He says, fix your hope on that and it will get you through everything in the present. So he's been building up to that before we get to, the, to all of the applications and what that looks like. We still need to, to address verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 because there will be a day when we see Jesus face to face. And it's going to be a glorious day. There is a future hope that gets us through trials. And it is the outcome of our faith. It's the salvation of our souls, which is what verse 9 says. But first, Peter needs to address a specific trial that would be true of the people there in Asia Minor, but also everyone after them, us included. And it starts in verse 8. He says, and though you have not seen him, being Jesus, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So Peter hones in on one specific trial that all of these Christians were experiencing. What is that trial? Well, it's that none of these guys and girls had ever seen Jesus. I mean, you got to think about it. This is probably 60 to 64 AD, which is about 30 years after Jesus' public ministry, after his, after his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his 40 days on earth and his ascension. So most of these people have never encountered Jesus. There might be like one person that they have met along the way that said, yeah, I actually was around in that Nazareth place and I saw some of the things that Jesus did. But by and large, these communities were filled with people that had never heard Jesus teach a message. They had never seen Jesus perform a miracle. They were not there on the day of his crucifixion. They were not there in his 40 days appearing to people and proving that he did raise from the dead. This is all secondhand or thirdhand knowledge that the good news, the gospel, was spreading throughout the world and they were hearing it and believing in that message. But if we're honest, because we're in the same boat, there's, there's got to be a shred of, of doubt in your heart, it's like, man, I am just kind of believing what other people are saying here. I mean, I wasn't there. I didn't see him. I don't see him now, but I believe in him. 
And so there's a propensity for us that, that we, even today, feel like second-class Christians. Because we weren't in the, there in the cool days when God was in the burning bush. Or we didn't get to see God split the, well, well that's, we didn't get to see God split the Red Sea. S-E-E-S-E-A. We're tracking with that. Uh, we didn't get to see God do all of these miraculous things like a, a, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. We didn't get to see Jesus in his ministry. Hang on the cross, rise from the dead. It's all secondhand things. And I know if you're like me, there's a lot of times where I wish I was there then. So man, it would be so much easier for me to believe and have full 100% confidence if I just saw him. If I was there in that day, man, I wish I was in that day, how much better it would be just for me to know, to have a total confidence and so Peter is writing a letter to encourage people that had never seen Jesus which is interesting for him because if there is anybody that had first hand account of everything Jesus did who is it it's Peter I mean he had seen it all from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the transfiguration where Jesus showed himself in all of his glory. He was one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle that they had. I mean, he was in on every conversation that Jesus had in private. Almost all of his miracles. We know he was there when he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane because he cuts off Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest. We know he was there when Jesus was on trial because he was in the courtyard denying that he knew Jesus. We know that he was there at the crucifixion. And we know that he was there in the moments of the ascension in the, moment, in the day of Pentecost, 40 days after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's there, Jesus, not Jesus, Peter, the pillar of that early church. So what does he say? I mean, how does he encourage those guys? Yeah, man, it would have been awesome if you were there. You really missed out. <laughs> Be encouraged. No, like what do you tell people that will never get to see Jesus physically and tangibly? Say, man, I wish I was you. Well, here's exactly what Peter says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So what he's doing, he's comparing and contrasting. He says, yeah, I know you haven't seen him, but you love him. And I know you don't see him now, but you believe in him. And you're like, well, how is that exactly supposed to make me feel better? How is that the, the other option that is supposed to be helpful to me? What does my love for God help me knowing that I've never seen him? What does my belief in him help me know that you know, I'm, I'm never going to be with him. I'm never going to get to walk or have a conversation with him in a room. The answer is because love for God, belief in God, and glory-filled joy are encouragements because they are evidence of God's work in your life. They are evidence that God is at work in your life. Because if you are doubting, you say, man, I've never seen Jesus. How do I know if this is real? 
How do I know if I have a real relationship with God if I've never seen him? And Peter says, look at the fruit in your life. You have a love for God. And that is a mark that you are a genuine believer, that you are born again. This is exactly what Peter is building from verse three. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, meaning we now have new life in Christ. Ephesians 1.10, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. You remember the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, it's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did I get all of them? Good. It's not the fruit of Jake Johnson, is it? I didn't produce them. They're not mine. Who produced it? Fruit of the Spirit. What Peter's doing is saying, you have a love for God. That didn't come from you. It came from who? God. That you have a new life in Christ. It is fruit of the Spirit. It's evidence that you have a salvation, that God is real. That there's something going on here. In fact, 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8 says this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. I'll say that again. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you have love in your life for one another, but especially towards God, it's evidence that you have relationship with God, that you have been born again. You have a new life in Christ. So your love for God is an apologetic. It is evidence. It is proof that there is something happening inside of you. But it's not just love for God. It's belief in him. 1 John 5, 1, the next chapter, John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He says, this is the work of God on display in you. He says, and then you have joy. You have a joy that's inexpressible, that it's hard to even explain why you're joyful even in the midst of trials. You should be the most miserable people on the earth because you're persecuted and, and suffering and you're poor and you're destitute and all of these different things. And yet you have a joy and a hope. And it doesn't mean we're the most happy-go-lucky people all the times. It means we have an anchor. We have something to look forward to that the rest of the world does not. And because of that, we have a joy. We carry ourselves differently than the rest of the world, no matter what's going on. I was having a conversation uh, fairly recently with somebody, and they were going through a trial, and somebody, one of their friends at school, was like, what? How are you handling all of this? You have a bunch of junk going on in your life, and, and yet you're living differently. How is that? Her friend was noticing that, that there is something different that marks her life, and it's that She's born again, that she has life with God, and that's an evidence. And so Peter is encouraging them in a really, really cool way. He says, yeah, I know you have not seen Jesus. I know you didn't get to be there in the heyday, and you don't get to see him now. But look at your life. Look what God has done in you. And as I read this, I think back to my own life. In my high school days, I became a believer when I was 16, sophomore, 
in high school and uh, man, my, I just had a roller coaster journey with discouragement and doubt of my salvation all the time and often because I was basing it on um, my struggle with sin and I was trying to find a feeling and I would be in worship and I would see other people doing like this and I wouldn't really be feeling anything and so I was like, I must not be saved because I should be feeling something. And I would look at my life and say, well, I'm not really like perfect. I feel like I'm one step forward, one step back, and this doesn't seem to add up. And so I would, I would deal with a lot of doubt. And this continued even into college. And I remember I was having a conversation with one of my uh, friends who I had known for actually quite a while, even into, uh, from high school into college, and was just sharing, opening up to him about some doubts that I had. I'd be like, man, I don't know if I'm saved. And then I'm not sure if God exists because it's just a whole confusing thing. And I was like, man, how do I know? Like, if I haven't seen him, how do I know? And he used something that we probably talked about, you've heard before. He says, man, you can't see the wind, but you can see the evidence of the wind everywhere around you. It's evidence that something, someone is working, that wind is moving through here. I can't see it, but I can see the evidence of it. And he says, well, what's the evidence? And he goes, man, your life is evidence that God is real and that you're a believer. I was like, what do, I, what do you mean? He's an honest friend. He goes, bro, you sucked. <laughs> you were the worst. You were a jerk. You were selfish. You were mean to people. All you cared about was yourself. You weren't patient. You weren't kind. I was like, man, you've just been <laughs> holding all of this in. He's a long friend. Best man at my wedding. And he said, you're none of those things now. He says, you're kind. You're patient. You actually care about other people. He says, you love God. You're not living for yourself anymore. He says, that's evidence that God is real because if God can do that in your life, man, that's amazing. I was like, thanks, <laughs> right? It wasn't a pat me on the back, right? Because it wasn't the fruit of Jake Johnson. It was the fruit of the Spirit. And so who you are and what God has done is evidence that God is real and that God is with you. And so, yes, we have not seen God. though no, we cannot see the wind. But we can see the evidence of God in us. And so what I would encourage you to do, just... An application point is ask your friends how they see God working in you and around you. And you know, prepare yourself because they might say, bro, you suck, <laughs> but not as bad as you used to. And that's, praise God for that, right? Ask them, how do you see God working in me? How do you see God working in you? How do you see God working around us? And begin to pray moving through things like that in your life because I believe full-heartedly that God is still working in us and around us even if we don't see him physically and tangibly. And I know for some of you in this room, you've really, really struggled with that, maybe exactly as I detailed my life and my story. That's been your struggle. Or maybe yours is just doubting the existence of God and, and the whole concept of faith and you're like, why do I have to have this blind faith? This doesn't seem to make sense. And so often our wrestling leads to directions. Some of you just go straight into the logic apologetic camp. And then other, uh, others of you go more into the supernatural and feelings camp. 
okay? And I find myself slaloming between the two, okay? I just jump and I'm like, oh, that would be kind of nice if you did both, right? And if you're in the logic camp, you find yourself uh, arguing things about the existence of God and and the creation of the world and uh, the historical accounts of Jesus, if he was a real person and the records of him and, and the reliability of God's word, if we can trust it in the canonization process. So why do we know this is actually in the Bible and that we can trust it, right? You go through all of the logic things and, and you're just trying to build this because you don't want to step into something illogical. And by the way, I think that's great that you are pursuing all of those things and I would encourage all of you to, to have a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. And I don't think our faith is illogical. I think there's a lot of logic in it. I think it lines up. But... It's supernatural. And there comes a point where you have to acknowledge, you have to admit, you have to come to grips that God has intervened and stepped into human history, time and space, and done things that supersede our finite understanding. And it happened in the past and that we can't see it. And so there comes a degree where you have to have a trust that goes beyond your understanding. And you cannot logic your way to the very end and say, now I can prove without a shadow of a doubt that everything here is true. There's always a degree of faith that I think God forces our hand in that we have to trust him at his word. And maybe for some of you, it's not logic at all. It's, it's actually something in terms of the, of the supernatural that... that uh, You've seen some other people, you've heard some stories where God has done something really, really cool, supernatural in their life, and you're like, I want that. I'm 99% sure, but there's always this 1%, and this was me too. I would dive into logical stuff, but also in worship, I was like, God, if you could just give me like a shooting star, then I'm in. <laughs> I get it, I'll fully trust you. Or maybe if you just someone say something audibly or a friend be like, yep, God's real, trust me. And, and that would be all I need. Just give me one more thing on top uh, give me a sign, right? Give me a sign so that I know you are real. And maybe some of you in this room have had that supernatural experience that led you to believe, awesome, love that for you, praise God for that. All I'm saying is that's not something that we can demand or expect, nor is it a necessity for us to come to faith in Christ. It's not something that is a necessity for us at all. In fact, Jesus throughout the scriptures would scoff, be troubled, disgruntled by people's demands for a sign. He said, man, Jews are always demanding signs. He says, man, even if somebody had a story like Jonah's, where they were buried for three days and then rose again, even if someone rose from the dead, you wouldn't believe so, man, he always struggled with this. They want signs. They want more proof. They want more proof. They want more proof. And, and that totally eliminates the reality of faith, of trust, of, of actually putting dependence in someone besides ourselves and our logic and our perception. And I'm just reminded here of the, the story of Thomas, doubting Thomas, which is tough. He should be Didymus. Uh, which just means like, ditto, twin. He was a twin. Thomas was a twin, but uh, we don't call him Didymus Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. Tough rap for him. But there's a reason for it, right? He seems to be a real analytical guy. He's probably in the logic camp, and as after Jesus' 
death and burial, um, you know the story that he ascends and there's kind of this staggered, relayed process of everybody finding out that he's back and he's risen from the dead. And uh, at one point, Jesus reveals himself to uh, his disciples and some other people that are there and it's this really amazing moment and they're like, wow, we're alive, we believe. But guess who isn't there? Thomas just missed one tough one to be gone right uh like you mean jesus came back and he's like are you guys pulling my leg because that would be mad that would be terrible if you're pulling my leg and saying he's back and so he says i i can't believe i won't believe until i see the imprints in his hands and i'm able to put my fingers in his side i'm not going to believe until i see it i'm not going to believe like eight days later they're all together again, this time with Thomas, and guess who shows up? Jesus. Jesus shows up. He goes right to Thomas. Here you go, Thomas. There's where the nails were. See my side. It is I, the Christ. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He saw it, And he believed it. And it's a beautiful moment, an absolutely beautiful moment. But then Jesus says something at the end, and this is for us. This is John 20, if you want to go read it later. And Jesus said to him, being Thomas, because you have seen me, have you now believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's for us. Blessed are those who never saw and yet believed, who trusted God at his word, that he did the miraculous, that he did the supernatural. And if you think about all of Jesus' ministry, the invitation to follow Jesus has always been come and see. It has always been come and see, not see and then come. Not, hey, check this whole thing out, see if it's up to you, whatever it is. Like, no, 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 you gotta come by faith and then you'll see everything. And if you're in this room and that's your wrestle where you're like, man, I would like to see first and then maybe I'll decide if I'll come and, and accept this. No, 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 you can't get to the point of 100%. God's given you enough. He's revealed himself in this world and through his word and through his people enough. You're never gonna get the 100%. Come and see. It's not see and then come. You may be waiting the rest of your life because God wants you to have faith. God wants you to have faith. It's Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We do not have to see him to believe in him. Remember a few weeks back when we were talking about hope, biblical hope, it's not wishful thinking. It's not how I hope this happens, as though it might not. No, hope is a confident, unchanging expectation of something that will take place in the future. Faith is the expectation that God will make good on his word. Have I seen it all? Have I seen the future? Do I know how it's all going to take place? No. 
but I have faith, I have trust, I have dependence in him that he is going to make good on his word. I often think about a trust fall. Um, I've never been a trust fall guy. It's not my thing. I don't like that. I'd like to be in control, and this is obviously a problem. You can see it. We all see it. (laughs) Uh, But that whole idea, I don't like just not being back there and knowing what's going on when I lay my dependence in the arms of somebody else, right? I'm like, well, what if you do that whole thing where you just stop and you just give up on me? That's not nice. That's going to be an ouchie for me. And so I don't like the idea that I can't see fully what's taking place as I trust you. And that's often how a lot of us handle faith. So yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I trust God. But also seeing how other things go. So I've got maybe one foot in things of this world because if this whole Christianity thing doesn't really work out, if it's just not really doing it for me, then I still got all this other stuff. Or maybe it's just this constant back and forth of being like, well, yeah, I mean, I I think I'm saved, but I'm also doing a lot of these like really good things just to beef up my resume. So no, your, your hope's not fully in God. Your trust and dependence is not fully in him. You're trying to do both of these things, and that's not full trust. I mean, if you're like me, you said, man, I would rather just face forward and then fall, and then if I see that this is not going to work out for me and you're not going to catch me, then then I'll be able to catch myself. And to what I say, that is not trust. That turns into a push-up. That turns into you in your own effort, in your own dependence, trying to make things for yourself, and you've missed it. And that is not the invitation of Jesus. That is not the offer of Jesus. It's faith and faith alone in him. It's trusting him that God has given us light and we can go to the end of our light, but at some point we have to trust him. There's a feeling that these guys are second-class Christians. So man, I have to operate in this faith that maybe he existed maybe he did all these things or maybe I'm just being duped I wish I was back there I wish I got to see it Peter anticipates it he says this in verse 10 as to this salvation so let's talk about the gospel let's talk about the salvation of Jesus Christ the prophets Old Testament who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow says the Old Testament prophets they were searching the scriptures and the prophecies that they themselves were making inspired by the Holy Spirit that was within them that a Christ would come They're reading Isaiah 53. They're reading the book of Isaiah. They're reading Genesis 3.15. They're reading all of these things and saying, there's going to be a savior. There's going to be a king. There's going to be a redeemer. There's going to be an anointed one, a promised one. And they're searching the scriptures, trying to find who it is and where he will be. And then they realized, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. Saying, oh, The promised one, the Messiah, he's not coming in our day. No, 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 no. But you, 
in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. He says you think you're missing out because you missed Christ. You missed the days when Christ was here. He says on the contrary, you're not missing out. He says, even the angels longed to know what was going to happen in your day. All of the Old Testament prophets, they searched and they realized this is happening in a future day. We're not going to be a part and and see the fulfillment of this gospel of the promises of God in real time. But you, but we in this room, guess what? We are living in the fulfillment of the promises of God. All the things that God has laid out for the Old Testament are, are being fulfilled now. Yes, some still future, but we're living in it. We are inheritance of the blessing of God. We're not missing out. We're in it. Peter says, don't be discouraged. Don't be in doubt. Don't think you're missing out. No, you're in the fulfillment. Praise God that you are a partaker in the gospel. Praise God that the spirit is now within you as a seal, as a guide to you forever that will bring you into completion on the day of Jesus Christ. He says, no, you're not a second class Christian. You're the fulfillment of Christianity lived out where God is making good on his word and redeeming people for himself to know him and live with him forever. And that's good news. And the same truth is for us today. So before you long for a day before us, before you long to see the Red Sea and all of those things, man, just remember, the Spirit of God is now dwelling within you. Not in a pillar of cloud, not in a burning bush, but within you. And that's really good. And that is reason to rejoice. So in summary, we do not have to deal with doubt and discouragement about our place in the family of God and God's existence because we ourselves are evidence that God is at work in us and God is real because of the love that we have for God and the belief that we have in him and the joy that we have in this world that's hard to explain but is still a a fruit of our lives and that we're not second-class Christians because we weren't there when Jesus was there but Jesus, as he was leaving, he says, it's good that I leave because someone better is coming and he's talking about the Spirit who's not in one place at one time as Jesus was but is with all of us all the time. He says something's better and so we're living in the fulfillment of God's promises all through Old Testament. And that's really good. And so if you're discouraged, if you're in doubt, don't demand a sign. Just open your eyes to what God has already done. And be encouraged. Let me pray. Oh God, how how kind are you to to move and work in our lives in such a way that it is obvious you are, you are producing something in us. 
that you have been moving in our midst and, and, and as the spirit who is likened to the wind in, in Pentecost at, at, at his coming that we couldn't see it. We don't see you today. And yes, it would be cool and confirming and a lot of wonderful things if you just showed up here and gave us a message tonight. But I believe that your word is sufficient. That we, like Abraham and Moses and many of the Old Testament saints of old that are detailed in Hebrews 11, that we can trust you at your word. That you are a God that is good on your promises. And we're not missing out. And so God, I pray for all of us in this room, my friends in this room, if, if there is a shred of doubt, or even if it's more than a shred, if it's a whole ocean of doubt of, of your existence or where we stand with you in that relationship, God, I pray that you would meet us where we are. And maybe that you would give us a moment, as, as Thomas, where you just extend your hands and say, see for yourself. God, we believe just help us in our unbelief. Draw us closer to your throne. Surround us with your people that remind us of, of who we are in you and the fruit that we, we possess. And if there is no fruit, then may it be a, lead to a moment of repentance. May it lead to a moment of salvation where we would humble ourselves and lay down our pride of saying, man, I don't want to look like a, somebody that has just claimed to be a Christian that wasn't, and that's my life. God, that I went for so long believing that I knew you and I knew you not. And you opened my eyes to see you and what real life with you looked like. And so if that is one of us in this room, God, I pray that you make it evident. And for all of us, as we deal with the distressing trials of our day, we wouldn't get discouraged and doubt, but we would lean into you all the more because there's no one else to go to. There is no foundation more sure and steady than you, our rock. Oh God, we love you and we praise you now. In Jesus' name, amen.